and um, if you were wondering, I'm six foot six, and uh, did not play basketball in college or sports, so uh, turn that level couldn't make a team. My brother didn't play on the team, but I did become um, a Christian. Like it's a going here? I was an atheist when I was a senior. Have any desire to uh, think about God, believe uh, in God, and I. Um, the girl that I was in love with was a Christian, so it was one of those things. Where she wouldn't date me, and uh, eventually, um, you know, I told her I was she did not feel the same way, and uh, of course, it broke my heart. But that's actually what led me to Christ. So, um, through the love of a human, through the love of God, it's uh, it's, it's, um, it's an amazing thing to be a Christian. Uh, I know some of you are not. I'm glad you're here, but. Uh, those of us who are, um, don't underestimate just the, uh, the amazing um, privileges to, to know the love of God. And I hope, uh, for those of you who are not believers, that you will know that love one day. Um, I'm going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible, um, open up to Matthew uh, chapter 5. And um, of course, there are going to be four talks. So... What I'm going to do is I'm going to cover um, yeah. different I mean, practices, um, different characteristics yeah. that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And first, we're going to talk about anger. So um, that's what you're going to be thinking about tonight, um, the anger that is within you. Um, I know that some of you probably don't think you're angry people. Uh, I think that Jesus would beg to differ. I think that uh, his whole point is that there's anger in all of us, and uh, he wants to root that out of us. So, uh, starting in verse 17, this is from uh, Matthew 5, and it would really help if you have a Bible, and we're looking at it, I'll refer to verses in there. Uh, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of a prologue, and now he enters into the first subject, anger. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So, Lord, we ask you now to come and send your Holy Spirit and bring the, 
The good news now, not just with word, um, but with power and with uh, the Holy Spirit, with uh, full conviction, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, 3,500 years ago, there was a great Jewish rabbi, the second greatest Jewish rabbi ever, and he went up on a mountain, and uh, the mountain was terrifying, uh, full of smoke, uh, thunder, um, there was uh, thousands of people below him, and uh, on that mountain, this rabbi, this great rabbi, received uh, what <clears throat> Jewish scholars call the Torah, and um, from the very finger of God were inscribed these laws uh, that we sometimes refer to as the Ten Commandments. It's actually more than that, but that's the heart of it. And he, he brought that law down to these people on the, on the bottom of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And uh, by that law, those people were, were made into a, a brand new thing. Um, they were no longer part of the Egyptian Empire. They were now the very beginning of the kingdom of God. And they were made that way by this law that Moses had brought down to them. And uh, 1,500 years later, um, another Jewish rabbi, the greatest Jewish rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, he, he also went up on a mountain, which is significant, because Matthew's portraying him as, as a second Moses, as a greater Moses. So he goes up on a mountain, and uh, this is a, a mountain that's uh, it's actually not too different from if you can see, the mountain that we're on right here, it was a, it was a small mountain, it was a hill. It's uh, there in northern Palestine, you can see it today. It's called the Tavga, and it, uh, it, it goes right down to the Sea of Galilee, a really beautiful, smooth slope down to the sea. And from that mountain, Jesus gathers his people, not as big a number, uh, just the disciples, maybe 40, 50 people total. And he says, um, I am going to give you a a new interpretation, or the real interpretation, of the Torah. And, and in doing that, I am going to complete the kingdom project that God started uh, with Moses on Mount Sinai. So one thing you've got to understand about the law here, the, the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus does not come to abolish the law. I mean, he says that. That's very clear. Um, sometimes people think that Jesus is putting his teaching in opposition to Moses' teaching. He's not doing that. He's saying, I'm coming to fulfill it. I'm coming to complete it. I'm coming to make it happen. Um, I'm going to make the Ten Commandments actually come to life. And so you thought it was just about anger. Uh, you thought it was just about murder. You, you thought that your problem was just that you killed. It's actually much deeper than that. I'm coming to deal with the root of that, which is your anger. So this is a deepening of the law. And when I, was, um, when I was an atheist in college, I thought that the teachings of Jesus, which included the Sermon on the Mount, and I, I, I had seen the, I don't know, the pictures in my, in my grandmother's house or maybe in her Bible of a picture of Jesus sitting on a, on a mountain with the disciples under his feet. And, and the teachings of Jesus, to me, seemed like it was very boring, not very mainstream. I hadn't read anything, but I just figured that it was kind of like Americana. It was like tame platitudes for your you know, middle-class American. It was just going with the flow. But um, then I actually read this stuff. And, and if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do that. Read chapters 5 through 7. And I realized that this is not, this is actually the exact opposite of what I thought. 
um, that the Sermon on the Mount is actually an intentional resistance movement. You know, in French, avant-garde means going against the grain. That's exactly what he's doing. And he's saying you can no longer continue to follow the path of the culture you're in. And um, this is the king of the kingdom, God himself, you know, Yahweh incarnate, coming to his people and starting a revolution. It's a revolt. Um, he on that little mountain with his people, they were starting, you know, a group around this size. He and his people are saying, I'm going to start a revolt with you, and, and we're going to um, be a resistance movement that's very intentional against this thing the Bible calls the empire. Now, that word doesn't actually show up directly, but it's implied everywhere. This idea of an empire that is in opposition to the kingdom of God. And um, planet Earth, according to the Bible, is uh, in revolt against its creator. This is kind of the worldview of the scriptures. And it is ruled by these illegitimate forces that are invisible. You know, we can't see them. They're called principalities, powers, powers. Satan, the devil, um, is the leader of this non-biological, powerful, malevolent mastermind, you know, whatever they are. You can call them demons or devils, but we don't know what they are. They're, they're some kind of treacherous, uh, hateful um, being that has swindled the human race into rebelling against the creator. And um, I think an analogy, if, if you know World War II very well, uh, Hitler invaded France, and uh, he pretty much took France. And so he started a new regime there. And, and a lot of the French people went along with that. And so they kind of were going with the flow of Hitler's empire, the Nazi regime. But there was a small group of people who resisted Hitler. And they constantly undermined uh, the Nazi regime. And they were called the French Resistance Movement. And um, the kingdom of God is like that. It's, uh, it's an underground movement of people. And the church is the, the, church is the ex- visible expression of it. But I think it's bigger than the church. The kingdom of God. And, and you're called by Christ to come and join into that resistance movement by these kind of practices that are so radical, like, like not having anger. Now, this thing I'm talking about, kingdom, empire, you may not have ever heard of this stuff. It might seem weird. You're not going to have any classes on it. I can assure you that. And uh, you're not going to see it in commercials. You're not going to read about it in papers. Uh, it's not going to be um, a part of the little secular box of the entertainment industry. Um, although there are two exceptions to that. I think one is Star Wars. And I've always been amazed by the way that George Lucas captured so much of the essence of the biblical story. Uh, he, he included other things, a little bit of maybe Eastern mysticism in there, but this idea of an evil emperor who's hijacked this galaxy far, far away, and then there's this righteous rebellion that's fighting to restore that galaxy to legitimate rule. I mean, that is the worldview of the scriptures. That's where things start going wrong after that, but that part is right. And then the other one I think of is the Matrix, which again, I know that those guys who wrote that were not are not Christians, but there's something about that that they get exactly right. The, um, the leader of the resistance movement in the Matrix is this character named Morpheus. And he says to the guy who's thinking about, you know, beginning to fight the Empire, uh, he says, Neo, the Matrix is a system. And I think that's a great word. 
what I'm talking about. Uh, the system is our enemy, but most people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inured, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. That's the empire. Um, it's, it's like the matrix. It's something that um, Christ is saying, here's the pill. I want you to take the pill. I want you to come and join my resistance. It's going to be hard. It's not the pleasant world that you thought it was. You know, it's going to pull back um, some of the, the veils that are over our eyes about reality. But he, he is saying there, this system is creating in us anger and lust and defensiveness and hate and gluttony and hoarding and anxiety and hypocrisy. This is just a few of the things he talks about in the sermon. He's like, that's being created in you by the system that you're a part of just by being born into this world. And he's saying, I'm coming to fight that system and uh, to bring things uh, like a resistance to anger tonight or tomorrow, uh, non-retaliation tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, um, generosity, and then Sunday morning prayer. I could have gone on to many other practices. I just wanted to cover those four. Uh, these, but again, remember, these things, um, if you grow up in a culture that's highly influenced by Christianity, these things, they seem normal. But if you go to where my friend is, like in Mauritania in Africa, and you start talking about those things, it's very clear there that's a resistance movement against the, the status quo. And I think that would be true even in secular Europe today. It just so happens that we live in a place that, at this point, is Christian enough that these things don't seem so countercultural. But they, I can assure you they are. So uh, let's look at anger now. Verse 21 22. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And he's quoting there from, from the Torah. But I say to you, and now again, he's not saying this is the opposite of what I, I, you heard from the Torah. He's saying this is deeper. I'm going deeper now. So it's not just not murder, but I'm saying to you that even if you're angry, you're liable to judgment. See, it's, he's deepening the idea of murder. He's saying that anger is a kind of a sea form of murder. And um, that, that anger will make you liable to judgment as much as murder. Um, he does the same thing, by the way, with, um, you know, with, with adultery. He's like, it's not just about adultery. It's, it's about the seed form of that, which is lust. And we're not going to cover that one, but, but he does the same thing several times. So um, notice the progression in 22. He goes from angry, whoever's angry with his brother, to then he goes to insult his brother next. Um, and then finally, you fool. So it's anger and then an insult. And then it ends with this ultimate thing, which is, you fool, raka in um, Aramaic, which is the ultimate insult. Now notice there that um, the first place you can detect your anger, and again, I I would say to you all that you are angry, um, it's somewhere in there, and the way you can detect it, and sometimes it's, you know, it's passive-aggressive, but think about your words. That's where you're going to see the anger. Uh, He he says... um, that this, this stuff in your heart, this anger, just suddenly will erupt. And there'll be some angry outburst, and you'll say, you know, I'm so sorry, I don't know where that came from. But it came from your heart, where you had been storing up the anger. That's, that's where all the, out of the heart, you know, proceeds the things from our lips. And when the anger is, is deep enough, 
What will come out of your mouth is contempt, which is very dangerous. Uh, there's a study once done where a guy looked at a very short clip of a couple talking to one another. He did that with several couples. And he predicted with a pretty high degree of accuracy if those couples were going to get divorced or not. Based on one thing, he was looking for contempt. And the, the phrase, you fool, which is like moron or idiot, it was the ultimate insult. And, and what Christ is saying is that when you show that kind of contempt verbally for someone, um, you're kind of dismissing them from the uh, community of human, human beings. And you're, you're uh, marginalizing them. You, you're dehumanizing them, which can lead to, to violence. Um, you know, calling someone sick or, you know, he's a monster or something like that. You're dehumanizing them, and that will eventually, that can lead very quickly into some kind of violence. There's a, a great writer named Dallas Willard, and if you haven't read anything by him, I would uh, encourage you to read The Divine Conspiracy. And um, he says that some degree of malice is contained in anger, which is why it hurts us simply to know that a person is angry with us. You know, so if I told you right now, John is angry with you, and you knew a guy named John. Just by knowing that John is angry with you, you would immediately get your back up. And it already begins to hurt. So he continues, anger is a feeling that seizes us and impels us towards interfering with and possibly harming those who have thwarted our will. Cain and Abel, great example of that. Cain is jealous because he thinks God likes Abel more than him. Classic sibling rivalry. I see that every day in our house. Cain is smoldering with rage. And God says to Cain, You've got to be very careful right now, Cain, because sin is crouching at your door you know, like a tiger, and it wants to devour you. Your anger is about to destroy you. And sure enough, Cain ignores God and ends up going out and killing his brother. Because out of the heart, um, which was so angry, Cain murdered, as Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, 19. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, anger, slander, insults, and murder. Another uh, author I love to read is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, there's a great biography of him right now by Eric Metaxas that's uh, a couple years old. Fantastic book. Probably the best book I've read in the last two years. Anyway, Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, The angry word is a blow struck at our brother, a stab at his heart. It seeks to hit, to hurt, and to destroy. With our hearts burning with hatred, we seek to annihilate his moral and material existence. So anger is dangerous. It, uh, it's dangerous because it makes you feel righteous. It, uh, it makes you feel justified. It's almost intoxicating. You get, you get a little bit excited sometimes when you have that righteous indignation. I don't know if you like Harrison Ford or Denzel Washington, but these two, they do anger so well. And sometimes when you get really angry, you think you're being like Denzel or Harrison Ford. But, you know, unlike them, it's probably just your own ego that's been hurt instead of some righteous cause. But it, um, anger just kills relationships. I got a text from a friend of mine. Um, I was asking him about anger in his life, and he said, um, anger destroys communication. It takes so long for people to heal after receiving someone's anger because you get fixated on the distorted, transient view of you that's incongruent with their actual normal feelings towards you. This distorted perception lasts a long, long time. If, if, if you find out someone is really angry with you, it takes a long time uh, 
to begin to see that person um, thinking of you positively. It just lasts a long time, and it breaks relationships. So the question you might want to consider right now is, who are you angry with? And, um, you know, you probably won't even like the word anger there. You probably would want to say, I'm not really angry with anyone. I'm just kind of frustrated a little bit. Um, and, and it might be hard for you to think of a person. Maybe it's not at all. Maybe you knew as soon as I told you what we were talking about. But um, in verse 22, Jesus gives you a little bit of help with trying to identify that person. Because he says there, um, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And that implies that someone in the church who you would call a brother. So if it, if it is someone in this room, uh, someone who is in the same chapter with you, that is not surprising. Um, it's, it's probably going to be someone close to you. A roommate is one possibility. Um, you know, parents, I, I know, thinking about my own daughter and the way that she treats us, there's a lot of anger um, from a child to a parent. Um, and oftentimes son to father and then daughter to mother. So that's one candidate. Siblings, huge amount of anger between siblings. So much rivalry, so much jealousy. Uh, I know like in, a, in a class, if you are in a certain class and there's someone that's majoring in the same thing you are, and they're always in that class with you and they always get better grades and they're always, you know, brown nosing the teacher, get really angry with someone like that. And you start to impute motives to them that you don't even know if they feel. So, consider asking yourself right now, you know, am I angry? Is it getting worse? Who is it with? Uh, that, I think that bears some reflection, some contemplation. You can think about that later when you get together with your groups. Uh, this is hard stuff. Anger is, anger is, is sometimes hard to detect inside of us. Um, especially if you're like me and you're more passive-aggressive. And you don't ever want to say, if somebody asks me, are you angry with me? I would, I would never say yes. I would always say, not really. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit ups, upset, maybe frustrated. But, but uh, in fact, yeah, I am angry. And I'm just hiding that. And uh, Jesus goes farther than just saying, don't be angry. He says, okay, my kingdom people don't murder. Uh, my kingdom people do not verbally assault people. Uh, my kingdom people don't even harbor anger. And... Final thing, uh, my people and my kingdom uh, reconcile with one another. Now, if, if what I've said is hard already, this is, this is much harder. Because it's one thing to try to just kind of forgive the person you're angry with and say, I'm just going to let it go. Um, I was talking to a young woman today who was angry with a friend, and, um, and she was saying, I think I'm just going to try to like just let it go. But I think that Jesus would say, you've actually got to go and be reconciled. And that's where it gets really hard. Now, you can only, you know, all, only insofar as it's within you can you make peace with a person. You cannot make them um, want to be with you, uh, want to be your friend anymore. But insofar as it lies within you, Jesus would say, you've got to go and be reconciled. So verse 23, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, go be reconciled. That's a worship service. So like when we're singing tonight, uh, when we're singing, or um, in your church and um, you know, the, you're taking up the offering, literally, and you see someone that you're angry with, he's saying, go be reconciled. That's more important than even the gift you bring. And um, I wish he had said, if you remember that you have something against your brother, he doesn't say that. 
Notice the language is, is very um, precise. If you remember someone has something against you. Now that's hard because um, now you have to think about it. And now you have to um, go and think about who might I have hurt? Who might be upset with me? And so you've got to go to someone and say, I think I may have done something to make you angry. And um, I want to make things right. And actually, the young woman I was talking to today did that. And she went to a friend and said, I think I might have made you angry. And I want to make it right. And the friend just used that opportunity to just blast her. That, that will happen sometimes if you open yourself up like that. So it's a dangerous thing to do, but that's what Christ calls us to. This is one of those, uh, you know, it's part of the resistance to the empire to do this stuff. This stuff does not normally happen. Um, think about who might be angry with you. Not just who you're angry with. Um, someone, um, you know, ex-boyfriends and girlfriends are often uh, the person that is angry with you. You might not be angry with them, but they might be angry with you. Uh, someone who is in a fraternity or sorority who snubbed you at a party or something like that um, in the same club as you. Um, these are people that might be angry with you. And Jesus said, you got to go be reconciled. Now, one more thing before I close i got to talk about hell, because it's right there in verse 23. And uh, Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Uh, and I think what he's saying there, I mean, I, I know that it's somewhat descriptive metaphorical language, but on the other hand, I want to say that he would, Jesus would say that anger itself is a hellish thing, that um, it's like a prison I would say in verse 26, he's comparing it to a prison. Anger's like this. Um, it's like the set. you dig out your own prison cell with your anger, and you crawl into it, and you lie down there. And if you ever want to get out of that prison, you've got to walk every step back out that you walked in. And that's why he says in 26, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you pay the last penny. That's not about purgatory or doing penance. That's saying, if you dig this grave for yourself of anger, and you want to start turning around and going back out, it's going to take a long time. You've got to walk every step back out. It's a, it's a, it's a scary thing. It's a, I think one reason that it's hellish is because you're actually playing the part of the evil emperor. Um, because you're doing his work for him. I mean, what the devil loves to do is, number one, goal in life, I think, is to accuse people. It says that um, his name is the accuser, Satan. And so when you're angry with someone and you start blasting them, not out of a gentle rebuke, we're supposed to do that. I mean, I'm not like, out of, just out of your own hurt, you just blast. that. You're playing the part of Satan there. And I would say, if you think about the people that have um, created these voices inside of your head, that um, kind of tear you up at night, and you keep hearing this phrase, like someone once called my wife uh, uncaring, and she just keeps going over that phrase again. And, uh, and if you're the one that, that said that to the person, you've been used by the evil emperor. That's what he loves to do. And so uh, that's why Jesus called it hellish. It, it justifies itself, it kills reconciliation, it eclipses the sight of God, and it really... It, it kills our desire even for heaven. So uh, that's all really heavy. I, I have not said anything very encouraging yet, so I'm going to end with a parable. Uh, and I'm not switching the subject here. I'm, I'm, I'm 
taking this where I think it, it should go naturally. It's my favorite parable. Uh, it's one of the reasons I became a Christian. And it's a parable that Jesus tells um, to his unforgiving disciples who are not willing to get rid of their anger. So he says, so there's a guy who owes a king $10 billion or something like that. I mean, the Greek amount is absurd. It's like the, uh, the national debt of America. And um, <laughs> he comes to the king and he says, if you just give me a few weeks, I'll pay you back, which is absurd. You know, right there is the, the futility of salvation by works. To think that if you just give me a few weeks, I can pay back uh, the interest on my debt. You know, that's crazy. King laughs, he says, you have no idea, but I forgive you, which is exactly what God does to us. And, and in doing that, if you think about the parable, if, if that really was the debt the guy owed, that would have bankrupted the kingdom for the, guy, for the king. To, so that is a costly act for the king to do that. He forgives the guy. So then the forgiven guy goes out. And here's the amazing part. When you hear the parable, you're like, that guy is so stupid. He goes out, and he meets this person who owes him like $10. And... Um, it's shocking when you read the parable, but he's, he's pitiless. He's merciless. He starts choking the guy. He's like, pay me my debt right now. And the guy says, I can't do it. Give me a few weeks. And he's like, no, right now. And uh, eventually the king finds out about it. And this is what the king says. Uh, Matthew eighteen thirty two. You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So um, a friend of mine recently told me, uh, this guy, a sad story, he went to Covenant Seminary, PCA Seminary. Um, He was a great student. He actually uh, taught me about Reformed Theology. And, uh, and, and, and in seminary, he kind of lost his faith. And recently he told me, you know, Ben, I just, it would be immoral of God to send anyone to hell for not believing in some kind of esoteric creed that's almost impossible to even figure out, much less believe. And uh, I said, you know, I completely agree with you that what you just said would be completely immoral, but that is not why God sends anyone to hell. People go to hell. Because of the parable, because they do not um, forgive, they refuse to forgive, and they choose to stay in their prison of anger uh, forever instead of receiving forgiveness. That's in the parable. But the other side of the parable is that if you ever want to be forgiven, no matter how big your debt is, that uh, the, the, the forgiveness of our king is wild and free and endless. And his readiness to do that is just shocking, um, no matter what the cost to him. And as quick as we are in anger, and as slow as we are to let it go, the, the king is so slow, slow to anger. And he lets it go so instantly, the second we ask for it. So, so that the king himself you know, creates this kingdom that is gloriously free of, of anger. So um, after we're going to sing a song, and after we sing that song, we're going to break into groups. And just be thinking about those questions about um, who, you're, who you're angry with, who might be angry with you. And just, I, I want you to really consider um, the danger that there is in being angry and the call 
the call of God to not be angry, and the empowerment he gives you by not being angry with you. Uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I, I pray that um, these would not just be words, but that, um, as I prayed earlier, that the good news would really come with power. Uh, we need a power that is beyond our um, mere cognition and thinking. It's got to be from deep within our um, emotional resources and from our will, and you can reach that only by the Holy Spirit. And as we sing this song, I pray even the music would reach down into our deepest level of being and change us and make us less angry. In Christ's name, amen.